If you're a director and you need an actor to give voice to the most evil force in the Empire, there's really only one guy you want. If you only knew the power of the dark side, Obi-Wan never told you what happened to your father. He told me enough. He told me you killed him. No. I am your father. If you want an actor to put the king in the animal kingdom, there's really only one guy. Look, Simba. Everything the light touches is our kingdom. Wow. A king's time as ruler rises and falls like the sun. One day, Simba, the sun will set on my time here and will rise with you as the new king. And this will all be mine? Everything. If you want an actor to lend authority and gravity to your news and public affairs network, there's really only one guy. This is CNN. That guy is James Earl Jones, one of the greatest actors of our time and one of the most recognizable voices of all time. I realize that you might be perfectly happy to spend this podcast listening to him read the list of ingredients off a cereal box. But he happens to also have wonderful, fascinating stories to tell. So you get a twofer on this episode of What It Takes, a podcast about passion, vision, and perseverance from the Academy of Achievement. I'm Alice Winkler. Adame, this child is gifted. And I heard that enough that I started to believe it. If you have the opportunity, not a perfect opportunity, and you don't take it, you may never have another chance. It all was so clear. It, it was just like the picture started to form itself. There was no way in which a lie could prevail over the truth. Darkness over light, death over life. Every day I wake up and decide, today I'm going to love my life. Decide. 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 My advice is, if they're going to break your leg once when you go in that place, stay out of there. <laughs> and then along come these differential experiences that you don't look for, you don't plan for, but boy, you better not miss them. When I pulled the James Earl Jones tape out of the archive and hit play, this is the first thing I heard. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> and immediately I felt in the presence of greatness. James Earl Jones recorded this interview for the Academy of Achievement in 1996. He'd already been acting for 40 years on stage, on screen, and on television, an icon for generations. But since then, new generations have come of age, stirred by his voice by his work. As I record this episode, James Earl Jones is 86 and retirement is still nowhere in sight. Let's start at the beginning though, in Arkabutla, Mississippi, where Jones was born in 1931 and lived until his family moved to another rural community in Jackson, Michigan. It was very simple and uh, I think blessedly simple. And when I look back on, on, uh, on what might have put me on, a, on this path or that path, I think the extent to which I have any balance at all, any mental balance, is <laughs> because of being a farm kid and being raised in those, those isolated rural areas. Even in Mississippi, uh, there, there was no concern about, uh, no immediate concern about uh, social problems, you know. We, we, we were a 
a feudal system of our own. Grandpa was a feudal lord, and we all did our work, you know. And there were 13 of us in the household. We, we, we were self-sufficient. My grandmother, though, began to prepare us in her own uh, neurotic and, I think, psychotic way to face racism. So she taught us to be racist, which is something I had to undo later when I got to Michigan, you know. And in Michigan, it was even more isolated because it was, uh, you know, nine months of snow. <laughs> it, it's, 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 and as much as I, I, I uh, yearned to flee that when I was a teenager, uh, and now I yearn to get back to that. That, that simplicity. One of the main things James Earl Jones learned from country living has served him his whole life. He talked about it in the interview and in a speech he gave the same day to students who sat mesmerized, hanging on his every word. One thing I want to share is a concept, uh, probably that runs counter to the Constitution. In the Constitution, we hear the phrase, the pursuit of happiness. That's always bothered me. Now, I don't take much stock in Afrocentrism either, but perhaps that came down through my ancestry, uh, my African ancestry, because it is prevalent over there, or perhaps it came from my Southern background, which could happen to anybody from the South, or my farm background, which could happen to anybody besides us farm and farm boys. It, the, it's the concept of contentment that replaces the word happiness. Um, so if, if you just, if you're content with contentment, which is just, you know, being at ease with yourself and at ease with who you are, where you are, when you are, what drives you then? I, I would suspect, learning from my 13-year-old boy, is curiosity. And, and I, I would suspect that, um, and, and the antithesis of curiosity, of course, is boredom. I, I guess what you should do if you're bored is take a nap or or see a shrink because I think there's something dangerous about uh, accepting boredom. Uh, because if you if you are if you are if you are in the present, you will be curious about it. Why should someone be content with playing a role uh, about an old blind man with a big dog um, who has several stories about playing baseball with Babe Ruth off season? in which he tells it about 50 words or less. Uh, but I tell you, uh, the, the excitement of hearing kids who saw that little movie, Sandlot, and liked it, we shot it over here in Utah, in Salt Lake City, Utah, who liked it, well, that, that's enough to feed my, my contentment. Um, or who would be content with leaning into a microphone, half asleep, saying, I have you now, Obi-Wan Kenobi. <laughs> See what I mean? Special effects, that's all it is. And to get that kind of uh, reaction, that, that, that feeds my, my contentment. If you count up all the audience members that have been moved or delighted by James Earl Jones, he must be one of the most contented people of all time. He starred on Broadway in The Great White Hope and Othello and Fences, and I hope he gets some contentment hearing that when I was 12 years old, my parents took me to Broadway to see him as Lenny in the classic John Steinbeck play of Mice and Men. It was an experience that still overwhelms me. Since he turned 80, James Earl Jones has starred in no fewer than five shows on Broadway, 
are on London's West End. Then there are the movies. Jones made his screen debut, this is a little known fact, in Dr. Strangelove, playing the B-52 bombardier Lieutenant Lothar Zog. He went on to starring roles in lots of other movies, including the film version of The Great White Hope, Mate Wan, Cry the Beloved Country, Field of Dreams, and The Hunt for Red October. I'm running out of breath, and I haven't even mentioned his television work. All that said, the contentment James Earl Jones describes is not the giddy sensation of happiness, but something softer, slower, more relaxed. You can hear it, I think, in that basso profundo, that human tuba of a voice he has. And the person he credits with teaching him contentment? When I single the person out who inspired me most, I I go back to my grandfather, the quiet one, because he taught me the value of being able to listen, being able not to rush to judgment, being able to be be really rational, you know. Um, Give an example. When we first moved to Michigan, we went to, uh, uh, I mean, they were, they were religious people, and uh, they, lo- they allowed me to decide for myself, but they were very religious people, uh, Protestants. And um, before my grandpa built his own church, we went to a, the neighboring town, and it was a, a white community, you know, up north, mostly uh, middle European people, and Indians, Chippewa Indians. Uh, we were welcome to that church. But once we got in, they didn't know what to do with us. They didn't know what to sing, for instance. So they sang, Old Black Joe. <laughs> I mean, it, it's kind of a hymn-like song, I guess uh, Stephen Foster. Uh, and my grandmother was immediately incensed. My grandfather said, you know, maybe they don't know what to do with us. <laughs> maybe they didn't mean any harm at all. Consider that. You know? <laughs> So it was then when I began to say, well, maybe my grandmother isn't always right, and maybe I, I should not be a rabid racist as she you know, is, is recommending. You know, like, like being a New Yorker, you always you let your paranoia serve you. Right? Well, same with being a minority in, in, in a so-called racist society. You, you know, you, 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 nobody ever fools you. But you don't assume that somebody's going out, out to get you when you, you know, when you meet them down the road. I mean, we come from a, a world where you saw a stranger on the road, you said, hi. You know, you wave, you honk your horn. Strangers were, were important people, you know. And you don't you don't you don't get anywhere or by being suspicious of them. That that that's that's the second thing you do, not the first thing you do. A documentary filmmaker named Irv Drasning conducted this interview, and he wanted to know whether James Earl Jones was also influenced by any particular books. I, I gotta say, uh reading was a big thing, yes. Books were a big thing. Uh but the things that stick out were the newspapers. Every every night after supper, uh, I guess before supper we'd hear Gabriel Heater, a famous news commentator. Uh, and after supper, though, we'd get the news from the paper, and my granddad would read everything that he thought was relative and pertinent to us, you know, and to our lives. He'd read read it, read it out loud, you know. And uh, I guess I was influenced a great deal by that. World War II was approaching, so the news was critical, and also gave Jones a broader sense of the world outside his rural enclave. But he also simply enjoyed the sound of his grandfather's voice. He enjoyed listening, perhaps more than other kids, because young James Earl Jones stuttered 
and so he didn't talk for years. Well, it wasn't that I stopped talking. It's that I, I resolved that talking was too difficult. You see, in, in the move from Mississippi to Michigan, you would think it would be a jubilant journey for a young boy of, uh, I was then five years old, to going to the land of the, the promised land. You know, uh, For me, though, it was leaving the soil that I had touched with my bare feet. And I didn't know if I'd ever touch soil with my, with my bare feet again. And that was traumatic for me. I was leaving Huck Finn world. And, and forget social problems. I was leaving the, the earth of Mississippi, the, the clay soil of, along the banks of the Mississippi River. And that, that, that was a trauma for me. And I didn't realize that until I went back for a family reunion in, when I was 40 years old. And I got back to the old homestead, and I felt it. Such a, a warmth, not, not temperature, heat warmth, but such a, a psychic warmth hit me that I was back to that land again. And, and that, that, that journey, that, that choo-choo train journey from Mississippi to Michigan was, was a trauma. I mean, there are other little things that happened along the way uh, that, that one might pin uh, it to, the, the family, fam family things. I, I was an adopted child uh, of my grandparents, and I, I don't know how I can ever express my, my gratitude for that, because my parents would have been a mess, you know. And there were considerations about that. Where should I go? And that, that began to bother me when I hear those discussions at night. Where should James Earl go? But it was a journey itself that I, I, I really feel the, the, the being ripped from the soil is, is what set me into a state of trauma. So by the time I got to Michigan, I was a stutterer. I couldn't talk. So my, my, my first year of school, was uh, uh, was my first mute year, <laughs> and then those mute years continued till I got to high school, and I became a, a writer, you know, and um, and I was resigned to that. that. That was okay. It was kind of quiet, you know. I, I compare myself now to Ali, Muhammad Ali. You know, whenever I meet him, he doesn't say much. I think he enjoys it back there, not saying very much, because he was such a a mouther before, you know, and brilliant at it. No, I think he enjoys being quiet. Well, I enjoyed being quiet. I, it, it, it was, a, you know, as long as people respected and didn't bother me and didn't probe me, you know, I, it was a nice place to be. But um, I'm, I'm still a stutterer. But we all find a way to mask it. And sometimes, I guess, our vocabulary might be a little larger than it would have ordinarily been because uh, we have to find a word we won't chip on. A uh, word that begins with the right consonant. So how did James Earl Jones find his way out of silence to become one of the most booming, eloquent, respected voices of stage and screen? Well, he points to a single person, a poetry teacher he had in high school named Donald Crouch. Jones enjoyed writing poetry and shared it with his teacher. Do you like these words? He said, do you like, do you like these words? Do you like the way they sound in your head? He says, well, they sound 10 times better when you give them out in the air. It's too bad you can't say these words. He began to challenge me to nudge me toward speaking again. And by using my own poetry and then other poets, because he himself was a compatriot of Robert Frost, you know. He himself was a poet. He himself said he, he learned a poem a day in case he w went blind. You know, he'd have a whole book of poems in his head. And he, he, he nudged me toward that, toward the, 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 you know, acknowledging and appreciating the beauty of words. Donald Crouch nudged, encouraged, and prodded, 
And then one day, James Earl Jones turned in a poem called The Ode to Grapefruit. But it was really about, uh, uh, I don't know if any, anybody, anybody can, else can appreciate, I wouldn't expect them to, in the wintertime, in, in, in the snow country, citrus fruit was so rare. And if you got one, it was, it was better than ambrosia. It was better than a peach. It was better than anything you could, you could imagine from exotic worlds, you know. And I just poured my heart out <laughs> to, to, to the wonders of grapefruit. Jones wrote the poem in meter, the same unusual meter that Longfellow used in his poem, Hiawatha. And uh, Donald Crouch used that as, as a reason to challenge me. He said, I don't think he did. He said, this is a good poem. It's so good, I don't think you wrote it. To prove you wrote it, get up in front of the class and say it out loud. And that, that was the t- I, don't, I don't know whether he, he, he concocted that challenge or not, but he, he really meant it. And I got up and I said it and didn't stutter. Nice surprise. Something magical had happened when he stood in front of his classmates, reciting words off the written page. And with that door opened a crack, James Earl Jones stepped on through. Still, it would take a few more years before he would take that magic to the stage. My uncle and I were the first, my youngest uncle and I were the first members of our entire family to ever, ever go to college. I was the first to ever, ever go to the military. So we, we were special, we were vanguards, you know. <laughs> and uh, and as, a, as a vanguard, it was important for me to pick uh, one of those big three, doctor, lawyer, engine, chief. You know, one or the other. Maybe teaching, but that, that was, that was not, not, not really encouraged. You know? I, because I thought I liked science, and I did like the Jules Verne kind of science. In high school, I decided to, to choose medicine, and that, that was my rationale for going to the University of Michigan on, on a scholarship. Um, it, it, it was, not, I, it was, it was not, my, not my favorite study, as I found out later. I was having great difficulty with, with physics and chemistry. So in my sophomore year, I took a senior anatomy class. I thought anatomy being the thing that I should be most interested in. And if I could, if I could hack, as we called it, a senior class, I would continue. I didn't hack the senior class. So in my, in my junior year, I switched to the drama, drama department, also because, because I was in the ROTC. The Korean War was still raging, and I thought I'd be going to, if I didn't get into a med school, I'd be, I'd be off, off to war and probably dead the same fall. So I, I, I was determined to use my last two years in college doing something I thought I would enjoy, and which was, was acting. And it was probably because there were girls over in the, in the uh, drama school, too. You know. He did go into the Army and to Korea, and when he got back, he moved to New York to study at the American Theater Wing. Study acting, and which, meant, which involved dance and fencing and speech classes and, and uh, history of theater, all that. I was preparing myself for the theater. And... Um, and I got a little job here and a job there, but it wasn't going well. And I considered sometime before uh, the mid-60s that maybe I should consider something else. And I went to NYU for uh, some vocational testing, vocational guidance. And they found that I had a talent perhaps in architecture. So I applied to Pratt you know, and Parsons uh, for that kind of training. And I was prepared to you know, saying bye-bye to acting, go on to something, something else. And before I went, joined my, my uh, fall classes, I got a job out in, in Indiana <laughs> that sent me back on the track of acting, you know. 
but I, 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 I'm, I, I don't want to be, ever be a sentimentalist. I, I, I prefer to be a realist. You know, I, I'm not a romantic, uh, really. And uh, I never, I never approached the, the show business from a sentimental point of view. I never saw it as a romantic and glamorous place. I knew real show business from my father's life. My father, who had been an actor since he he left the world of boxing, he was a prize fighter when he first. And man, I, n I never really knew. Uh, man, I, 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 allegedly, I I went. I was face to face with him once in my uh, when I was about two three days old and didn't meet again until I was an adult. Was not allowed to meet him until I was an adult. I mean, legally, I, 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 was, I was, it was banned. I, I was not just, until I could decide for myself, uh, I, um, there was such animosity between uh, th those two families. So, but I knew of his career through his mother, and I knew it was not very successful. But I didn't know how good an actor he was. I found out later he was quite a, quite a uh, wonderful actor who excelled in the, uh, the element of simplicity. But. Um, because he was one black and then blacklisted because of his his involvement with, with labor unions and so on during those those years, um, he 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 just didn't get work. Certainly not in what in areas that Red Channels controlled, which was movies and t television. He got work occasionally in theater, you know. And he told me when I finally met him, uh, he said, "I've not been able to make a living at this, so I want you to know that's a possibility. That if you you, you don't enter it for the money." You in it because you love doing the work, and uh, so I, I had that that reality uh, orientation, and I, I've never looked, looked looked at it as a romantic place or as a place to make big bucks. Perhaps, perhaps I should have. I, I'd have I'd been richer if I had gone for the for the, with the bank, you know. Uh, but no, I, I and also I've, I've applied that that contentment measure. Uh, I was as, as content off Broadway as I was in in, in a big Hollywood movie. I just try to be content wherever I am, you know. I was told yesterday by some wonderful, brilliant mind that I met on a path out here. Churchill said, success is moving from one failure to the next with undiminished enthusiasm. Well, that, <laughs> uh, that, that's what I was able to do from my early... <laughs> Not, nothing threw me, really. Nothing embittered me. It didn't even throw him, James Earl Jones told the interviewer Irv Drasnan, when his beloved grandfather whacked him upside the head for talking about becoming an actor. The idea uh, that you would uh, really take seriously a life of a, a troubadour. I mean, I was, my, my people were very, very simple. They were peasants, people, you know. So the idea of somebody making a living as an actor or a singer, you sang in church, you know, and you didn't act at all. He tried not to act, you know, he tried to tell the truth. The idea of, of being a troubadour on the road and singing for your supper was very uh, di disturbing to him. You know. So he, that, that was his way of dis discouraging that, that kind of thinking. Did his thinking change as your career progressed? No, but the, 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 his insane wife, my, my grandma, Maggie, hers changed because in her insanity, the idea, I mean, this is the woman who, who taught her bedtime stories were about lynchings and hurricanes and floods and rapes and murders, you know. Those are her bedtime stories. For me to go into a drama, that was, oh, that was kind of turned her on a little bit. She was the first one. I got a job over, uh, over at the county seat in Manistee, Michigan, the little, little uh, opera house. We had a summer theater there. And she was the first to be there, first row. 
You want to see me in these dramas, you know? And uh, so she she opened the door uh, in terms of, the, uh, as far as the family was concerned, about allowing this to happen. And what was it about acting that was so attractive to James Earl Jones that he spent his life dedicated to it? Well, you might take a guess. It wasn't acting. It, it was it was it was uh, language. It was speech. Uh, it was a thing that I'd been denied all those years, and then had denied myself all those years. I now had a great, pre- an, an, an abnormal appreciation <laughs> for you know, and it was the, the idea that you can do a play like a Shakespeare play or uh, well any well written play, Arthur Miller, whatever, and say things you could never imagine saying, never imagine thinking in, in your own life. You can say these things, you know. That's what it's still about. Which is why he persevered as a young, struggling actor in New York City, even when chances were high that he wouldn't succeed. It was as it should be. Uh, I, I, I was not, because of my father's or, orientation, I, 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 was not, I, I did not expect anything. Uh, no one asked me to be an actor, so no one owed me. There was no entitlement. Still is not. It is one, one, I think the arts in general... No one asked you. They might ask you to, be, to fly an airplane. They might ask you to, uh, to raise wheat. But they don't ask you to sing a song. That is still considered in this society uh, uh, one of those um, elitist or luxury uh, in, endeavors, you know. So the idea that uh, you are essential has not, has not occurred yet. I think with the, with the lack of appreciation for the National Endowment, it seems it may never occur in my time. Uh, but I think someday it, it must occur because it does occur in, in all great societies uh, of, all over Europe and, and uh, in England. Uh, the arts are, have always been an important ingredient to the health of a, a, of a nation. But we haven't gotten there yet. And, and so actors have to, have to accept that, that you know, we, um, no, no one asked us. So the idea of not getting work, that's, a, that's part of the territory. There was no one person who gave James Earl Jones his lucky break. Instead, he says, he was in the right place at the right historical time, an explosive, revolutionary time for a young, black, aspiring actor, the 1960s. I got out of the Army. Uh, in, in, my, in my world, I came to New York, for instance, and uh, uh, the Civil Rights Movement was just beginning. And uh, that created a certain energy, certain rumble, certain impetus for, for black black actors. And, the, and, the, and the, the, the game was not to get caught up in it, not, not to get swept away by it, away by it, but to keep on, on, on track of what you wanted to do. Uh, you, you weren't going to the theater to, to change the world, you, uh, but you had, you, had, you had a chance to affect the world, the thinking and the feelings of the world. Athel Fugod, one of the early playwrights that I, that I encountered in those days, uh, always said, he doesn't assume, and he, he was talking about South Africa then, apartheid South Africa. He never assumed that he could change anybody's mind, but he knew if he was good enough, he could change their feelings. And their feelings would affect their minds, you know, hopefully. And that, that, that's all we, we, we can expect in terms of missionary work, you know. Um, but I, I think it, it was more, it was more uh, uh, an, an unusual time than, than, and than any given person. And in that time, I did meet Ethel Fugard. Um, 
and I and I met the whole avant-garde world. In, in England, it was referred to the, the angry young men period. Uh, in Europe, it was um, avant-garde, and we were uh, theater, theater of the absurd. Uh, put together, you saw in, in, internationally theater now being available to the proletarian, that anybody could be an actor. You didn't have to have the elite family background of the Barrymores. The, the door was open for Marlon Brando, you know, real common man. And when Marlon did his work, when he did his Stanley Kowalski, every truck driver in New York said, hey, I could do that. That's me, I could do that. And that was very important. It was a very, very important movement, the I can do that movement, you know. <laughs> and I was a part of that. So it, that, that included women could play men's roles and blacks could play white roles and, and truck drivers could play Marlon Brando roles. <laughs> And it was, uh, I think that's, that's what sort of opened life up for me and opened that, that artistic life up for me. Of course, James Earl Jones's success can't be entirely chalked up to the radical 60s. There was also the issue of his talent. You're the only person who can tell what, whether you have talent or not. And there's a, a certain point where you got to be really honest with yourself and say, yeah, I do, and I'm going on, or no, I don't. And uh, your parents can't do it for you, critics can't do it for you. Once you determine that, then there should be no room for doubt. There should be, there is room that, well, maybe this isn't um, the right role for me. And that's always going on, you know. You're told no every day, you're not right for this role. And they might say, because you're too tall. They usually don't know why you're not right for it. It just, you didn't, you didn't ring a bell for them, that's all. And that's okay. You got to accept the fact that you don't ring a bell for everybody. There's only one actor I know who does, Morgan Freeman. He, he can ring a bell on the drama side, on the comedy side. He, he, you know, it's rare for this, this young actor to miss uh, in terms of the way he achieves his work, and it's also rare for him to, to miss in his character. Uh, whatever he does, it always seems to work in his character, you know. Well, that's very rare, and most of us don't, don't have that going for us, you know. Uh, and we will, we will fail to ring somebody's bell, and that's okay. Uh, when I first came into the theater, um, I followed Sidney Poitier's generation, which was not, not far ahead of mine, a couple of years. But he had established the height. And for the rest of us, we were there to establish the breadth of what young black actors could do. You know? Well, uh, I figured there was room for all of us, for Luke Gossett, for Raymond St. Jacques, for Godfrey Cambridge, for you know, Billy D. Williams. There was room for all of us, and there was. So we, we never felt competitive. And that was a blessing, I tell you. The goal wasn't to be a millionaire or to be a Hollywood star. That was not the goal. The goal was something about on that stage and finding better and better uh, plays and hopefully movie scripts to do, you know, to be a part of good storytelling. That, that, the goal was about that, you know. It was about sitting on, 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 on a path and going. I would have been. I would have been a good explorer. I would have been a, a good, uh, you know, with Lewis and Clark, because you're out there, and there's nothing tell you, nothing telling you whether you're successful or not. There are no, no landmarks. You know, you're out there, walking. You know, there's a, there's a place you want to get to the northwest corner of the country, but all you can do is walk, and there's space and space. It, it must have been a wild and weird, weird world, but I, I think I, w- I would have fit in very well there. <laughs> he probably would have. Can't you just picture him 
standing at the mouth of the Columbia River, looking out at the Pacific Ocean and proclaiming his contentment in that great, gentle, bottomless voice. James Earl Jones spoke to the Academy of Achievement in 1996. More than 20 years later, he has a starring role in a forthcoming movie called Warning Shot. He's reprising the role of Mufasa in a remake of the film The Lion King, due out in 2019, and he was honored at the 2017 Tonys with a Lifetime Achievement Award for his six decades in the theater. I'm Alice Winkler, and this is What It Takes. What It Takes is generously funded by the Katherine B. Reynolds Foundation. Thanks to them, and thanks to you for listening. Take a moment to post or tweet. Our handle is What It Takes Now. And why not even write us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you go for great shows? Thanks again.